0: I had understood that farmers struggle and farms you know, have a hard time staying afloat, but I hadn't really gotten the message that it was such a pervasive economic problem.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. Why would a woman walk away from a successful career as a journalist and professor, a comfortable home and a good life to become a struggling farmer. That's exactly what Beth Hoffman did. She had spent decades as a reporter covering food and agriculture and taught at the University of San Francisco. Then in 2019, she and her new husband moved back to his family's 530-acre farm in Iowa to try their hands at farming. The experience has been spiritually rewarding, but financially sobering. Half of America's two million farms made less than $300 in 2019, according to Hoffman. That's a recipe for poverty, not success. Hoffman tells her story in a new book, Bet the Farm, the Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. Beth Hoffman, welcome to the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Tell me a little bit about your life before you became a farmer in Iowa.
0: Well, we were living in San Francisco um, before we moved to Iowa. I was a professor um, in media studies department at the University of San Francisco, and I had been reporting on food and agriculture for about 25 years uh, before we moved. So I had covered a lot of farms and farming and sustainability and development. I had traveled, um, gotten to travel around the world doing that a little bit. And um, yeah, we had, a, we had a quite a comfortable, nice life. We lived in a wonderful neighborhood. Uh, we had lots of friends and then we moved.
1: So you of all people don't get to claim ignorance. You had been reporting on this. You knew that farming was a precarious business. Why did you decide to give up what you just described as a very nice life and a nice job and become a farmer?
0: Well, I, you know, through the reporting I had done, I had been covering sustainability. And so the opportunity to actually do it was super interesting. Like if you're a reporter who thinks they know everything, isn't that sort of the ideal, right? That you go and do it. And I guess I've always sort of thought that, you know, you all, you only live once, so you better, you better jump in and do all the things that you need to do and, and trying new things um, isn't, and living in new places, it doesn't it didn't kind of scare me to do something different. So, you know, I think you just kind of get comfortable sometimes, and then don't try challenging things. So, why not?
1: Well, talk a little bit about the your fantasy about life on the farm, and the reality that confronted you on moving to Iowa, and and talk a little bit about your husband's farm and its history.
0: Yeah. So John um, was also living in San Francisco. He had moved there to go to culinary school. So he was a trained chef, um, had worked as a butcher for 12 years before we moved. And we had spent many summers out on the farm. So I knew, I, I understood like about the heat and the hard work and and I guess for my reporting too, I had understand, I had understood that that farmers struggle and farms, you know, have a hard time staying afloat. But really, it had always been framed as that it was problematic this year. Like this year, we're having a drought. This year, the price of corn is really low, and I hadn't really gotten the message that it was such a pervasive economic problem that year after year, even when prices are high, uh, making sure that you can stay alive as a farm is is a huge issue. So I think I I understood from the reporting and from spending time in Iowa, I understood, I, I wasn't coming in really like rosy glasses, like You know, I'm going to live the simple life and get my hands in the dirt and the kinds of things that you hear a lot of times and you might see on like homesteading videos and and those kinds of things. Um, I didn't I wasn't uh, that level of naive, but I was certainly naive to the economic side of it.
1: And that uh, your naivete, I guess, uh, reared up the moment you sat down with uh, John's dad, Leroy, who owned the farm. Um, Talk about what the negotiation or conversation, you probably didn't think of it as a negotiation when you're talking to your father-in-law. It was not a simple thing for him to decide to hand over his baby to you.
0: No. Yeah. No. And I guess, yeah, to answer also your, your last question, the farm is um, 530 acres uh, it's in South Central Iowa, which is a very rolling hills, uh, patches of forest, very green, lush. We have lots of water here. So it's it's a place that makes sense for agriculture in many, many ways. Um, but yes, like most people, um, John's father was, you know, that phrase, land rich, cash poor. So most farms have all of their money in the farm, in the land, in the livestock, in the machinery. And there's very little to kind of walk away with your 401k and, you know, go sit on a beach in Florida somewhere. That isn't really how it works. So um, we had to figure out a way to have John's dad have income be comfortable, not be worried about losing the farm as well, and us to be able to come back on the farm. So it's a problem that's very, uh, lots of farm families deal with is like this transition of the farm. Um, Luckily for us, John's sisters were in line with what we wanted to do. They really wanted to see us here and taking over. But the negotiations with John's dad, yeah, they they took a lot of time and um, had a a few curveballs thrown in at us, um, which is uh, outlined in the book in detail. But we figured it out over time that we would uh, lease the farm. Most of it, there's still about um, 100 acres that are being row cropped uh, by someone else. And we, we leased the rest and we purchased all the cattle from him as well.
1: And, um, uh, explain, uh, what you grow and the, what you do with the livestock.
0: Yeah. So now we, um, so we, we stopped doing any kind of row crop. So even though this is a rolling hilly area, a lot of our neighbors are still growing corn and soybeans, um, we decided not to be in that game at all for all of the many reasons that are in the book. Um, And we also decided uh, based on just our experience really in the sustainable food world. And we we were very well convinced that we needed to make changes that were better for the environment, but that were also going to result in better financial situation for us. So we purchased the cows from John's dad. Um, there were 30 cows. We um we and then we we've now um just grass finished them on the farm. So they are at they are with us their entire lives. And we've added to that herd uh with a few breeds that are better for grass finishing. So they have smaller frames. Um, we also s- just got a bull that is uh is called a white park, so it's it's actually a white cow because we can see a future of having much hotter summers, and the black Angus um, are notably hotter creatures on the land in that environment.
1: Explain what you mean by grass finishing a cow. So grass,
0: so the commodity market. Well, let's just t- take a step back. When you, when you drive all around America and you look out the window of your car and you see cows, typically what that is is called a cow-calf operation where cows are having calves and they walk around on pasture. And that goes on till about nine months of uh, the calf's life where then they're weaned and most typically sold to a feedlot. Um, where they are then fattened on corn and soybeans in a, in a pretty rapid, uh, at a pretty rapid pace. Um, we, and that takes about, um, 18 months for the whole thing, 16 to 18 months for the entire life of a cow that way. Um, we, we actually then keep them on the grass their whole lives. So they're here, um, just out on the hillside. They don't actually uh, go to anywhere, anywhere else. So they're with us the entirety of the time and we don't feed them any kind of grain, which is better for their digestive tracts. And it is also better for the landscape because we move them every day. Uh, They have very little impact on the land then. And that process takes more like 24 to 30 months Um, It produces a cow that's much leaner that um, studies say have different kind of a composition amino acid wise and all of that kind of stuff. And the fats are different. Do you feel like you can
1: taste the difference between grass fed cattle and uh, conventional?
0: You definitely can. It has a different um, the, one of the reasons why cattle are fed corn um, is is because it really marbles the beef. So you get a marbled fat, hot, much higher fat content, is, which is where there's a lot of flavor. Um, we were very nervous going into raising them solely on grass because uh, oftentimes you can end up with very tough not fatty animals at all, and they uh, just extremely lean meat um, and of a very different kind of texture but by all accounts actually our the beef we've sold to people directly we, we've had actually most of those customers without even being prompted tell us that it's the best tasting beef they've ever had, so I guess we're doing something
1: right. Hmm. What's been the impact of climate change on what you do?
0: Well, you can see, you know, Iowa had a bit of a drought. It wasn't California drought proportions this this summer, but um, you could see that the cattle, the people around us that raise cattle in more conventional ways, which would be also not rotating them, just putting them into very large areas. And then they just kind of graze and are there for weeks. Um, and those, those farms around us, you could see that they just were running out of grass really early. And we had, um, even now hay prices have gotten really high, um, in the Midwest because there's been so little rain. Um, we, on the other hand, because we've moved the cattle so much have had just extraordinary grasses throughout. And we actually ended up with a huge amount of hay. So um, we we see that going forward, that that's going to be more of what happens. We're going to have more of these outstanding years that are either too wet, too dry, too hot, too cold. And we've just got to be prepared for anything which which is part of farming arguably anyway you you never know what is in store for you but uh, we see that we've got to be more resilient financially and ecologically if we're going to kind of weather the weather
1: Um, hmm. uh, I and I have to digress here because as we talk about the You know, the things that roam the countryside in Iowa for a lot of the country every four years, the thing that roams the countryside, there are politicians running for president. Hmm. Do you um, uh, so I have to ask, have you met some of the presidential candidates in your uh, travels?
0: I went to see. We went to see Elizabeth Warren speak, but we haven't had them here directly. No, in that I, we we got here kind of, and it was a p- pandemic. Don't forget, so there was a lot less of all of that going on. But no, unfortunately.
1: How do Iowans take to being yanked out of their... Uh, pastoral existence and put in the national political spotlight every four years, do you get some sense of that from your neighbors
0: um I guess i don't yet have a sense of that um I know that it it becomes certainly overwhelming with um phone calls and texts like the the amount of you know people calling and texting and calling and te- that becomes overwhelming, which I think is probably the case in many swing states now. Um, But I will say that that caucus process for all of the bad press it got and all of the rest of the country whining about, you know, how long it was taking and whatever, it was one of the coolest kind of political things I had ever been to. It was my first time. And the idea of like getting together in a small town or even, you know, just in your precinct um, in the city, getting together with all these other people And sort of discussing out what, who you were going to support and why, and, and having kind of like, it it was just an entirely different experience than I have ever had before with politics, where you just show up, you know, you cast your vote, you leave. This was, you go in, sit at the table, you pick, discuss with other people, try and get, you know, convince the other people at the other tables to come to your table and um, just it was very fun and very interesting. Mm.
1: Okay. Well, um, back to farming, but mm. you know, I had to digress there. Yeah. All right. So, one of the things you say in your book, Bet the Farm, is that in 2019, half of America's 2 million farms made less than $300. Why can't farmers make money?
0: Well, I think an important thing to think about with that fact and people have um, been been kind of asking me the same question in various ways is that there are different kinds of farms included in that. Um, farms that don't intend to make much money are included in that. Farms that are just trying to get off the ground are included in that. Um, and, I, and I think that it becomes um, I use that fact because I think what it really talks about is this, it, at its essence, what it's saying is that in order to farm, everything you make at farming has to be poured back into the farm. So even if you are a very large farm and you are trying to, um, you're trying to have the land as, as an investment, let's say, um, What you have to do is end up pouring that money back into the farm in order to just stay alive. So the the game of it is, again, that you become land rich, cash poor. There are a lot of assets that are owned by a farm, but in order to actualize that and end up with a retirement where you can do something besides farm, you have to sell it all or figure out a way to cash in on all of your assets. So that's an important part of it, is that just that the seeds, the equipment, the animals, the machinery, it all is extremely expensive. And so that's, that's a huge reason why farms are not making money.
1: So what has been the reality for you and John as farmers? Are you able to you know, make money and support your family to the level that you are comfortable?
0: Well, like I discuss in the book, you know, we came into this with a lot of privilege and that has to be acknowledged. And I want to be very upfront about all of it. It's part of why I wrote the book was to talk about the real finances behind it. So we came in with um, some very notable things like some family wealth, not enormous family wealth, but some family wealth. And we came into it also with land accessible for us. Which are two components that if you do not have, make farming almost impossible to get in. So if you if you actually don't have access to family land, the cost of it is is cost prohibitive. You can't you can't start a farm um, these days, particularly if you're younger, particularly, if you are of um, you are a farmer of color that's trying to get in and has not had historically, Or even today, the same kinds of programs that are available and bank loans and all of the things that have made the farm possible today. So um, we are now we've kind of adopted a method of just really investing only really what we feel like we really need to in the farm. So um, John's dad, one of the things that almost broke our whole deal was that John's dad asked us to buy a a huge amount of equipment before we would get started. And that was um, going to be a deal breaker for us. We were not going to go into debt in order to do this. Um, And I think that that's allowed us to, see the light at the end of the tunnel so to speak where even in these first few years where we're paying off the cattle where we're having to buy more cattle um we can see that within the next few years that will result in some profits but it it won't it will never be large it will be on the you know thirty thousand dollar range which having grown kids um Owning our house outright, you know, it's it's probably enough for us to survive.
1: So clearing thirty thousand dollars a year as your family income. Is well, what...
0: but plus plus again, there is some investments. Not again, huge investment, but enough money that we can kind of together do do fine and have everything else paid for, like our house.
1: Right. And be able to send kids to college and, and that kind of thing.
0: Right. That's done. That's so. done.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, say a little bit more about the issue of farmers of color and what you see. I mean, you, you see the whole farming community there that you interact with. Are there many or any uh, non-white farmers?
0: There are some, there are a few and far between in Iowa. Um I I don't remember the numbers offhand, but there, there are very few, like 70, I want to say, Black farmers in the state, you know, something that's like incredibly small. Um, there are some younger farmers who are trying to get in uh, who are farmers of color. There's also people who Similar to, I think, more in California, you see where people have started as farm workers and are kind of working into a management and then maybe an ownership position. Um, but you don't see very many.
1: Hmm. Um, you talk about the the allure of organic farming and sustainable ag. Is sustainable farming sustainable?
0: Financially? Yes. Yes, I think it is. You know, I think that one of the things that I talk about in the book is a concept, uh, one of the myths is this idea that bigger is better. And so in the bigger is better model, you need to kind of have a monoculture, meaning just grow one thing, grow it on lots of ground, use big machinery and all of that. And What what happens in that model is, is that farmers end up competing with each other, uh, putting each other out of business because you can't have everyone be bigger. You can't all have an economy of scale. It ends up being just a few farms. Um, You also have problems of oversupply and huge debt that goes into that. On the sustainable farming model, most typically it's smaller and you can do very niche things and produce products that are produced very well um, and, and end up putting much less money into it. So having less debt, much less oversupply of products and probably higher prices at the customer level. And more importantly than, than even what the customer's paying, because I, I would kind of argue sometimes like, you know, people always say like, oh, well, f- well, everyone can't shop at whole foods. It's too expensive or maybe they can now, but you know, the smaller groceries and, and that kind of sustainable farming, people can't afford it. And, you know, and I would argue that now being in a place where I can only really shop at Walmart. And the high V, some kind of big chains. It is not that much cheaper. You cannot walk out of Walmart without spending quite a lot of money because there's all these other things that you pick up along the way, and and so, um, yes, I would argue that sustainable farms can actually be financially sustainable. It has to. You have to work in a maybe in a more cooperative kind of sense, working along with other farms and other farmers, um, getting rid of some of those myths of competition, of growth, of just trying to get the highest yield possible. Um, if you flip that narrative, I believe that we can end up putting people in a better economic position.
1: What do you hope people come away from your book with? Say maybe your former neighbors in San Francisco, if they read about what their old neighbor did, uh, what do you want them to, to understand?
0: Well, I think one of the things that um, has always bothered me is the sort of demonizing of farmers or the, the misunderstandings about why farmers do what they do And for me, it was a very important part of the book was to bring not only empathy for farmers in their situations to the table, but have people understand the reasons why farmers do what they do. Farmers who, people who have a hog confinement unit, let's say. I don't think it's that helpful to just say, just don't do that. We have to actually work from the reasons why somebody would put in a hog facility and address those reasons because we you can't just erase something out of the landscape of possibility if there's nothing else presented that is actually a viable thing for people to do. So I want I wanted people to understand that um, it's not because farmers are brainwashed by agribusiness. It's not because they lack education and they're minions of, you know, Monsanto. There's real economic reasons why farmers have chosen to do what they do. And we need to address our solutions targeted at those reasons.
1: Okay, well, Beth Hoffman, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thanks for having me
1: beth hoffman's new book is called bet the farm the dollars and cents of growing food in america that does it for this week's vermont conversation you can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org vermontconversation vermont conversation i'm david goodman thanks so much for listening